welcome to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Zoe Ingram. And I'm Emma Harris. And we're broadcasting live from Berlin, Germany. We are. And Zoe, welcome again. You were with us for Plan S, um, joined the discussion for that. And uh, Louisa is away in Australia looking at koala bears. So you've very kindly stepped in and you'll be uh, the co-presenter today. Yeah, I'm very excited. Thank you. Yeah. Um, And it's a special episode as well. So we've got a special special presenter and a special episode. We're here at the Diversathon, uh, which is an event for International Women's Day in Berlin Mitte at the Berlin Institute of Health. I think we're here really to explore the connection between open science and diversity and gender equality. I think we just want to find out what is motivating the people to come here and why they're willing to take the next five hours of their time and start working on uh, Wikipedia articles for women. Yeah, I mean, I think the the event was motivated by the the quite um, alarming statistic or quite saddening statistic then perhaps that... um, about 17% of the um, articles on Wikipedia for notable people are for women. And uh, that's in English language, and in German, I think it's like only 15%. Which is really low. It's really low. Um, So the idea is today that people literally just bring their computers, um, they get a bit of training on how to edit on Wikipedia, and then they either create new articles or edit stubs of articles on women or other underrepresented groups, you know, ethnic minorities or whatever. Um, And it's a a really cool event. It's been organized by the BIH, the Berlin Institute of Health, uh, the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine, where, of course, this podcast is produced, and the... Charité. Charité, And the Leibniz Institute. Leibniz. So it's a a really cool event um, to try and increase the way that women are represented and women scientists in particular are represented. We're standing here with Karen Hune, the organizer, one of the organizers from the Wikipedia Edit-a-thon. And um, can you tell us a little bit what's going on right now, what's happening? So after we had some introduction and some training on how to do the editing, people now get into editing. They sit together, they have their laptops in front of them, and they really start editing. And we have the beginners who do their first steps and just correct a few sentences, things like that, add some links. And then we have the more advanced people who really uh, create new entries and new Wikipedia entries. Cool. And um, so what scientist do you think is most underrepresented? Um, Like who do you think needs a Wikipedia page now? Like a person, I really should name a person. Well, we were talking about a lot um, about uh, Kete Beutler, um, who was a pediatrician in, in Berlin, Berlin, um, I think in the 20s. And um, she, um, we named a building, a BH building after her at uh, MDC in campus in Buch. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we also want to have her have an, a Wikipedia entry. So some people focus on her entries. I think this is really important. Okay, and what she what is she famous for for the listeners who've not heard of her? Um, oh well, she was a pediatrician as a woman uh, being um, a doctor in a time when it wasn't so common for women to work in this profession. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think she was Jewish. I'm not sure. We have um, <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, I, I didn't check all the all the biography entries. We had a lot of people contributing different names. Sure. So um, yeah, I think uh, this, this maybe explains very well what's the problem because you cannot find a lot of information about Kitty Boydler. We have this building and everybody's talking about Kitty Boydler, but you have just very. Not very complete entries mm. in the internet and some information that she is the grandmother of a very well-known uh, scientist, things like that. So, and, and the problem with her is that she doesn't fulfill all the notability criteria because she didn't want win the, the great prizes and uh, we mm. didn't talk about third-party funding in this time. So it's really difficult that she uh, fits uh, to the no mm. notability criteria. But I mean, just being a woman doctor in this time was already something very notable. Of course. Um, so this is a difficulty how to write an, a, an entry about her. I was thinking about the notability criteria and it didn't really make sense to me because if you were looking at the, um, the pictures that um, Jess was showing, then in the top position there were so few women in comparison to men. I'm like, oh, how are you going to, I mean, shouldn't the barriers for women and men maybe be a little bit different for what, what a notable person is? Yeah, and taking into account what was at the accessible for women at the time, yeah. like you've just said, yeah. you know, to just to be a doctor was incredible achievement in two hundred years ago. Whereas, you know, now it's it wouldn't obviously count. So yeah. I think there needs to be some kind of cultural sensitivity. Yeah. But even if you look at today, if we're looking at the numbers, like there was how was it ten percent were the top like mm. women and and ninety percent as professors were men. And if you look at the MDC, five in the senior groups, five uh, are women, mm -hmm, yeah. and uh, what was the rest? 30, One. 31 were 31. men. Yeah. So yeah. that's already that's already like the barrier is. Uh, so it's notable even today, just to, right. just to break the glass ceiling. Yeah. Even even the numbers Jess uh, mentioned, like having fewer citations than men, uh, the grants they get, they they get less money in the mm. grants. They do not win the big prizes as often as men do. So how can we, we discuss this, um, mm -hmm. how can we put the women into Wikipedia if they do not fulfill those notability criteria? Of course, I also see the point that we have, that we need some kind of um, benchmark. Mm -hmm. We cannot put everybody in, in, in Wikipedia. So mm -hmm. yeah, of course, well, that's also understandable. But I think we have to discuss this problem if we want to have more, even other underrepresented groups like uh, black, Asian, mm. other minorities. So maybe they have much more difficulties to succeed in the system we have. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's also a question of power and representation. And mm. it's much bigger than just the Wikipedia. Yeah, the difference between equality and equity. Yeah, yeah. of yeah. course, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so... Um, I mean, you, I think we've touched on this a bit, but what motivated you to become involved in organizing this event? Actually, um, we, lately we talked a lot about visibility. Um, I mean, part of my job is talking about the numbers and we lack women and we have the leaky pipeline and there are not enough women winning prizes on top positions. But on the other hand, we also have a lot of women, especially in the field of medicine. I mean, in the middle part of the system, we have so many women doing incredible work and we just wanted to make them visible. So we started with creating short video portraits. We recently released 10 video portraits, short films, three-minute films about women doing research. And they're just telling about why they're doing research, what kind of research, and to give them visibility, to show that science is much more diverse 
than the public perception shows mm. us. And this is just a step further uh, because a Wikipedia entry also increases visibility and we all use it. So we thought, yeah, let's, let's uh, join forces and make Wikipedia a little bit better, a little bit more diverse maybe. Absolutely. Well, you just answered the question I wanted to ask, which would kind of impact you <laughs> trying to achieve. So I think we have one last question, and that's yes. on open science. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how much you've heard of open science, um, but I mean, some of the principles that underlie it are you know, transparency and accessibility for all, and also including people who maybe haven't been part of what you could call the traditional um, knowledge production process. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess I wondered if you kind of had any experience with open science firstly, and if you did, if you felt it kind of connected at all with uh, visibility and diversity and representation. Yes, I think this is a very important question. Um, I mean, to make, uh, on one hand, to make research results um, accessible for a broader public. I mean, it's it's not only scientists who should read about uh, scientific results and mm. research, but also other people who are interested in and who maybe could also contrib contribute something mm. to the research, even if they didn't do the whole medicine thing at university or got a PhD or things like that. So this is one side. On the other hand, it's also this question of power. Who has the power to be visible and whose voices are heard, even if they are part of the system? So I think, yes, th then, then the... Um, the way to do it open and transparent is a really important step to make it uh, accessible for yep. different groups and also to, to share this knowledge. Because I think science is about cooperation and, and, and sharing knowledge, but the system in which we are right now, it's much more about... Um, 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 Competition? Competition, yes. Because you want to have the money the others don't get and mm -hmm. you keep the results as long as you can on your own to publish them first or be the one who, who is, puts mm -hmm. his or her name on the paper, things like that. And I mean, it could be done better, I think. Absolutely. With much more transparency and cooperation. I yeah. think this idea from to data stewardship rather than data ownership is like yeah. a really good example of yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think if you make the whole process of science more open and more collaborative, that's only going to help um, make, make you know, women more visible and feel in less in an environment. This is what going back to what Jess Wade was talking about, where she was saying, you know, it's in a hostile environment a lot of the time. Yeah. So if we try and take away some of that hostility, then, you know, I think we empower um, people to feel they can achieve more. And maybe we also get better results because if you have people thinking outside the box and not only thinking the way we always thought about uh, mm -hmm. problems and things and only taking the background we can bring in ourselves, if we have much more diverse people doing mm -hmm. it and having access to science, then we also get other ideas and maybe that's the way to fight with cancer or other mm -hmm. problems we didn't solve until today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I always ask this, do you have... Like, if you had a take-home message for our listeners, what, what would it be, like, in a, in a nutshell? Oh, I think that uh, the question of gender equality should not only be a question women are fighting for, <laughs> or even diversity. I think it's, it's a responsibility of uh, all the people doing science that they have to be aware of and they have to fight for every day because they sit in committees, they talk on panels, they go to conferences. And if everybody brings up this topic... I think that makes it much more easier and it's not only for the women who have to fight all the time. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Now we're going to listen to an extract from uh, Jess Wade, Dr. Jess Wade, who was one of the keynote speakers at the event. The whole process of of getting an academic job and and being secure and successful basically relies on the number of publications you have and and the number of big grants that you can get in. But the number of publications is, is one thing that's been shown in the past couple of months alone to be super biased. So firstly, Nature did this big uncovering of all of the bias in their peer review it actually started out in eLife, this life sciences journal that you probably are all familiar with, but bias in the allocation of peer reviews. So this was before it's even been um, accepted or published in a journal, just the way they do the allocating largely goes to men and Western academics. So you're much less likely to get allocated peer review if you're a non-Westerner or a woman. Just a couple of days ago, there was a big study that revealed that men's work is more likely to be accepted and more likely to be cited. And then beyond that, these two studies from a couple of years ago are really funny, but they look at how how much more often men cite themselves than women do. So men are citing themselves and other men more often than they're citing women. And, And all of these things are infuriating, right? And then exactly the same thing happens with the allocation of grants. So there was a big investigation by the Canadian Research Council and they had kind of this two-step. Anyone who is in the room and is familiar will, um, familiar with applying to grants will know how tedious it is and how much work you have to put into a grant application and how much material you have to provide. And Canada did a kind of interesting experiment by separating it into stage one, where you were evaluated based on your resume, so based on your CV. And then in stage two and three were based on the quality of your research. And when they evaluated scientists based on their resume, so based on you know everything they'd done before and their career path and how much time they'd taken out, they found that women were consistently rated worse than men. But when they were rated based on the quality of their research proposal, it was pretty much exactly the same. And actually more women were allocated grants afterwards, which shows you something funny is happening, right? There's some kind of sneaky unconscious bias at play here, which is impacting the decisions that really senior people are making in the allocation of grants. And the reason that I put this sign saying Ireland here is that the Irish Research Council also noted this, noticed this. So in, in 2013, they were allocating based on resume and CV, and then they gender blinded them, quote unquote, took away that criteria and evaluated entirely based on the quality of research. And it completely changed the representation of women in the grants that were allocated. So I think we really have to, and we're quite lucky now as young researchers that these discussions are happening, but we really, really have to keep talking about this and keep emphasizing it as being important. But whilst we have 22% overall of white women uh, professors, so of the professorial population, 22% are women, the representation of black and minority ethnic women is absolutely appalling. It's 1.7%. And actually the 26th black woman ever to become a professor was in October last year in the UK, is that I think people from different backgrounds bring an incredibly important perspective to the science that we do. And I'm hoping everyone is agreement on that. You all obviously will all know Lisa Meitner. So she was um, a German physicist and a woman at the beginning of the 1900s, and she was Jewish. And it wasn't great to be a woman physicist or a Jewish physicist then. And at the time, she was she was a complete pioneer in the kind of science she did. She worked really early in nuclear fission. Her supervisors went on to win the Nobel Prize and she didn't. 
because she was left off lots of papers for being a woman and for being Jewish, which is pretty outrageous to think that could happen today. She was she was nominated 48 times for the Nobel Prize by different scientists and never won, which is just ridiculous. But at the entire time, all of physicists, if you remember, or if you read science history at all, were going to this move of using nuclear fission and using nuclear energy in kind of atomic bombs and warfare. And she was saying, this is completely not right. We have a huge amount of power as scientists and we shouldn't engage with this. And she brought a completely different perspective to the science they were doing, which was much more focused on how it should benefit society rather than just benefiting the science, scientists and the politicians who led it. Then in the UK, we also had Jocelyn Balbanel, who I'm hoping some of you have heard of as well. So she was um, is a, an astrophysicist who 50 years ago exactly discovered pulsars, which are, which are rapidly rotating neutron stars in the night sky, which emits radio waves from either end. And, and at the time, this was pretty crazy and everyone, no one really trusted her data. And it was all really exciting. And, you know, again, another example of where her supervisors went on to get the Nobel Prize and she didn't and has been incredibly powerful in the movement for women scientists here in the UK since then. But she recently, late last year, won the Breakthrough Prize for Science, which was a $3 million prize that she's donated entirely to the postgraduate research of scientists from underrepresented groups. So Justin Balbanel, and I saw her speaking about this the other day, but she says, you know, she made this discovery because she was the only person on her team who thought differently to everyone else. She wasn't, she was at Cambridge at a time everyone was very posh. She wasn't very posh. She was a woman. She was from Northern Ireland. She just thought differently to other people. And she saw this thing in the night sky, which has now opened a huge new field of astrophysics. And she saw that and thought it was something because she was thinking differently to other people. And then just other great examples. I don't know if you've come across this great film of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the American um, lawyer and justice leader who's completely campaigned for women's rights in America, but it's fantastic. I watched it the other day. Joy Bellamini, who's at MIT, who's exposed all of this stuff for bias and facial recognition software. And then Greta Thunberg, who is completely changing the way I think the whole entire world is discussing climate change at the moment. And all of these people, actually lots of the people that you work with and probably lots of the people sitting in this audience bring something completely different to science because of their backgrounds and experiences. And I really think that needs to be something that we keep adding and keep emphasizing this to, to this discussion that it's not only we need diversity because it's fair and it's not only because it's going to decide what science we do, but also it's so important to have diversity of thought in trying to attempt to solve some of the biggest challenges that the world has. So we're standing here talking to Alice White right now, one of the keynote speakers. Yes, uh, Alice is from the Welcome Library. The first thing that would be really nice if you could just tell us a little bit about the Welcome Library and what it is and what it does. Great. Okay, so Welcome Library is a part of an organisation called Welcome Collection. So there's a museum and a library. Four floors of excitement <laughs> in London and a place called uh, Euston Road. Um, and it's funded by the Wellcome Trust. So broadly speaking, it's about uh, knowledge and exhibitions about health, but that can be very broadly defined. So, for example, in the summer, we're about to have an exhibition on psychology, magic and deception. Um, and Yeah. And so in the library, we have everything from quack medicine to cutting edge neuroscience, um, you know, public health concerns, yeah. things about people's well-being, 
So it tries to think about health in a really broad way, um, which is very exciting and gives me lots of scope to do exciting things with my job. That's brilliant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what can, um, say, somebody listening to our podcast, can they access stuff online? Yes. So welcome. Um, We're really lucky. We have an awful lot of resources. And so one of the things that we have done a lot of is digitisation to make texts and images available online for free for anyone to use and find um, so if you sort of type in welcome collection into the internet um, or welcome library, then you can find um, things like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of even um, images or books. Um, and we also regularly publish articles oh, really as cool. well. So everything from lived experience, what it's like to live with disability, for example, uh, through to history uh, of we recently published a series on the history of intoxication. Oh, oh well, wow. I yeah. actually know um, someone who is a, I think she's now a professor. She's only a senior lecturer in the history of alcohol in South America. Amazing. And I have a friend for the Long Night of Science. He uh, wants to do like a Kneipen tour. Like, and so we have in Germany these little kids, oh. like little neighborhoods. Yeah. And there's, I guess, a bunch of nerds that get together and then they go into a bar and he wants to do a whole series on intoxication. Amazing. Wow. Well, get them to have a look. Who knew? Yeah. That, that, yeah. That, that there was such a sub, sub-academic culture. <laughs> Around <laughs> intoxication. Around <laughs> intoxication. Yeah, pretty much anyone who's had ever, anything ever to do with academia, probably. But, um, okay, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I'm guessing you're kind of very pro-open access, accessibility to knowledge, that kind of thing. Is that... Yeah. Um, so, Welcome Collection is part of Welcome Trust, and we have a really um, explicit mission to make knowledge more open and accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. And that's kind of uh, part of my job. So, I'm a digital editor. So, on the one hand, I commission new content that's all CC licensed and available <laughs> to anyone, the new stuff that we're doing, but also we're very much intent that the older things that we have and the research that we fund and everything that we do is as findable and as open as possible. So that's that's why we do the work that we do with uh, Wikimedia, because 15 to 18 billion views a week just on the English language version is a huge number of people that you can reach um, in a way that we might not reach just on our own sites. And is the term open science something that you use? Yes, so we talk regularly about, you know, making making knowledge open and open science and open access. So, yeah, it's it's definitely something. And you can read the the policy on the Wellcome Trust website and see exactly what that entails. Um, but there's been a lot of changes in Europe recently mm. thinking in the ways that we're thinking about how to make knowledge open. Um, and so what we try and do is make sure that we re- review that regularly and think about the best strategy to to make knowledge open and that that's a very multifaceted thing. So the wiki work is one way of doing that, but also thinking about journals, for example, is another way. So yeah, there's there's lots of different ways that we're thinking about how to, how to share things with lots of people. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, um, do you? How do you see Wikipedia kind of fitting into open access and open science generally? Yeah. So, the, one of the things that really excites me about Wikipedia is that it's a really great gateway for people who might not have actually ever clicked on a journal article to get really involved in a topic and to be doing that for the first time. Mm. Um, but then, what's really important to me is that 
if they click on that link and it's paywall, that can be frustrating. Yes. What's great about Wikipedia is that there is a bot that crawls around every Wikipedia page that exists and looks at the citations and tries to find an open access version. Okay, right. So if there's an open access version that this bot can find, it will replace the paywalled version with an open access version. Okay. So Wikipedia is a really, really great way of making knowledge more accessible to people because that process is automated. Yeah. Um, if, the, if the citation is in, then as soon as there's an open access version that the bot can find, yeah. that will be there yeah. um, and people can click through and read more and, and do further research. And in, it doesn't matter whether they're in a university or you know, in a university with, with no access to a particular thing or not a university at all because why should research just be restricted to people who get the privilege of working in universities. Mm, exactly, yeah. I mean, <coughs> there was a quote right at the start of the event uh, about you, um, something like we become what we see. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting relationship to open science and open access in that, you, you know, if you don't, if you can't find this information and you don't feel that this information is for you, then that's going to make you suspicious of science and it's going to make you feel that you aren't part of that. Um, and also, you know, if you're already in science, it's going to make an already difficult environment even more hostile. Yeah, and Wikipedia is a really interesting way that those kinds of things are negotiated because mm. um, if you look at the talk page... Uh, there's a talk tab on the top of every Wikipedia article. Mm -hmm. And you can see the deliberation process about what should and shouldn't be on a page. And you can see the way that Wikipedians really try and carefully think about the science um, that we have, the knowledge that we have. So even really controversial subjects are actually often well represented because mm -hmm. people from all different kinds of views mediate on these talk pages and think about, okay, what is the best knowledge from the best people in the world right now and how do we explain this to people in ways that they can understand in sort of high school level yeah. sort of terminology, not yeah. in some really detailed, you know, polysyllabic journal access, yeah. you know, paywall accessing, but in a way that anyone can understand. Um, so first question, what scientist do you feel is most overlooked? Like who needs the page right now this second? Oh, see, that's such a hard question because every day that I am editing and, and doing these kinds of events, I hear of a new person and it's become a thing that I say far too often. I can't believe this person doesn't have a page yet. And I find myself saying that, that far too frequently. So the page that I just created, um, Celia Mary Oakley, mm. one of the founders of you know, cardiology as we know it today was completely missing. And, and that just, you know, so right now she's my person who I'm like, everyone should know about her. All of the information should be out there about her. Yeah. If you ask me tomorrow, could be a different person. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's what's really lovely about editing Wikipedia. You don't know who you're going to be inspired by next. That's really cool. And yeah, there's loads of initiatives to really widen our horizons as editors and introduce us to new people. So as well as Women Edit, who are here today with this event, there's an organisation called uh, Wiki Project Women in Red and Wiki Project Women Scientists. And they have great long lists of people who don't exist yet on Wikipedia. And some of that's crowdsourced and some of that is computer generated. And so you just never know who you're going to click yeah. on from one day to the next. I've done everything from 
um, midwives from, uh, you know, the, the sort of pioneer era American Midwest versus, you know, neuroscientists working right now and, and all so kinds cool. of different different people that I found out about. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Also, I now slightly want your job. So. Yeah, it's a really cool job. I'm yeah. so lucky. <laughs> I actually do have one more question. Yeah, As we were talking with Karen, we were talking about this um, barrier of being a notable person. Yes. And then we were looking and thinking about the um, talk from Jess where she was showing those pictures mm -hmm. of, of the, leading, the women that are leading in science and yeah. how there are many more men than women, like what, 10% women and 90% men, something yeah. like that. And then we were wondering, like, should the barriers maybe be different for women and men? Or how, how, do, we, how do we bring more equality in that? This is a, a sort of ongoing discussion, an ongoing battle, because um, you, on the one hand, you don't want to lower the standards and, and say that, you know, women don't do as, as great things as men. But on the other hand, there are a lot of barriers that stop women from being what counts as notable in Wikipedia. Things like professorships, so much more likely to be awarded to men. So some of the ways that we can push back against that is to look at all nine of the no notability criteria. So often, for example, women are um, much more active in teaching or in public engagement, and those are two of the criteria. So we need to think about making sure that we include people who do that work and recognise them for it. But also, Wikipedia reflects the community of editors. And right now, the community of editors is more male than, than female. And so the more diversity that we get in the community of editors, the more flexible I think people will be about how they recognise notability and what might work um, for different groups at different times. So on the one hand, Notability is important. On the other hand, it's one of the things that frustrates me the most. Yeah. I had um, one person that, who I was creating a page for, and she was one of the f sort of incredible aviators um, of Britain in the Second World War. She flew planes unarmed to move them from one place to another. She did great things in aviation. Um, and an editor nearly deleted her page and then spotted that I'd put, oh, and by the way, she competed for her country as an Olympic skier once. And he's like, oh, no, that, that meets the notability criteria. <laughs> she can stay. And on the one hand, I was glad that she got to stay. On the other hand, I was enormously frustrated that all of this incredible aviation engineering stuff got overlooked. And, oh, it's the skiing the one time yeah. she went down a big hill. Like, not that that's not awesome. But, but it's not, doesn't quite compare, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so notability is, is a thorny issue, and I think... Um, we yeah, there's not a straightforward answer to it, but the more people editing and recognising that mm. it isn't a straightforward issue and that it is really biased, the better able yeah, will be to do something about it. starts to create like a snowball. Yeah. yeah. So, listeners, edit on Wikipedia, put pressure on them <laughs> to make a change. Yes, please do get editing and, and there are so many people out there to help you with that. So look for your local Wikimedia chapter. Mm -hmm in the UK, Wikimedia UK, um, but there are different versions in every country yeah. and the great thing about those organisations is they will pretty much probably send a trainer to wherever you are if you want to host an event and get a load of people together and learn to edit. That's what they're there for, is to okay. facilitate editing and get you learning new skills and <laughs> making the internet a little bit better, so reach out. 
That's a, that, that seems to be a low threshold way to make a good impact yeah. on issues such as diversity and, and open science. Anything you could do in your pajamas is a great thing. Oh my God, that is like my motto <laughs> yeah. you know, on the t-shirt. Anything you can do in your pajamas is for the best. Yes. Okay, on that note, thank you so much, Alice. I'm Ying. I am a postdoc in the Leibniz Institute for Molecular Pharmacology in Wu, and um, I am in a structural biology department working on uh, NMR of collagen proteins. And you're a part of the organization team. I am today. part of the organization team. <laughs> I think events like this are, are really good. Just. Mm-hmm. For, you know, getting the word out. Even if um, yeah. people just say to their friend, oh, by the way, I went to this event. And yeah. did you know that you can just edit Wikipedia pages and mm-hmm. make more women visible? Yeah, I mean, I, like people always say, oh, yeah, but you don't know who's writing it. Actually, you do. If you go and look at the, you know, history and IPs and all this kind of thing, you kind of could see who is writing it. Yeah. You know, it's just having a better understanding of the whole process, which I think is also helpful for people just yeah. learning how to assess yeah, I mean, I think when I was a, when I was a university lecturer, mm. there was a lot of negativity about Wikipedia in that, sure. you know, if the students cited Wikipedia, we came down on them. They copy and paste from it. Which is even worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that actually, now on reflection, is actually mm-hmm. a really negative and stupid way of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Because instead, we should have been talking about, okay, how is Wikipedia created? Yep, how can we make it, make it more reliable? And what's the difference between Wikipedia and an academic Definitely Source. a personal, you know, yeah. And, and I think some people, um, actually, when I was talking about the edit, uh, this uh, diversity on to other people, some people would say, oh, you know, some people want to be on Wikipedia, but later on they find out that, you know, other people write things and they don't like it, and so they don't want to be on Wikipedia. I was like, well, you're thinking of Wikipedia kind of like a personal website or a, a Facebook page or a Twitter page. It's not like that. This is like a collaborative effort, and there has to be a consensus of what is and what is not in. And if someone writes something and they have the sources to back it up, you know, that's that's yeah. a fact. And you should not try to, you know, overly... <laughs> cosmetic it out of the yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and that's that's actually a really i mean if i went back and did university teaching mm. now i think i would get my students to do something like this yeah and I think this there'd be a brilliant way of teaching them digital technology yeah this is what it's supposed to enable and make easier this kind of making link to other existing bodies of knowledge yeah except that you know no one likes referencing software let's face it <laughs> absolutely and it only works in collaboration yeah Exactly. But I mean, we, this is where um, science and academia, I think, should be going. We should be, you know, seeing that as a, as a, a way of helping ourselves instead mm-hmm. of seeing it as a threat. Definitely. To established. Yeah. Um, and I mean, OK, biography editing is, you know, it can be a little bit fraught because, you know, there's a human being involved, especially biographies of leaving people. And that's why Wikipedia has all these, you know, policies and you have to be careful not to, you know, overstep things that mm-hmm. or overstate or understate things. But there are plenty of also, you know, topics that like, you know, are not so personal, you know, that people could contribute to. But people don't seem to always appreciate that, you know, there is also gaps on Wikipedia that really everyone can contribute to. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it would be Yeah, good. and I mean, if the first thing that, you know, everybody does this, if they're like, 
oh, what single cell biology? I've never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. They're gonna the first link on Google is gonna be Wikipedia. They're gonna read it at least to get an overview. I mean, exactly. I know I do. I mean, yeah. I'm a humanities person working in a in a research center, so mm -hmm. I spend all my time looking at Wikipedia. Going, what did he just say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you know, it's a great resource in that sense, and it's you know, there is a sort of certain standard that it is yeah. held to. So it's. Of course, you have to be careful and, you know, check who wrote it and how, how often it's been checked and so mm -hmm. on. But there is a community that's trying still to make it the best source possible. It's not yet a perfect community. And this is why we need events like this to bring people together, to bring them also more into this. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's a great, you know, example of what people can do together. Yes. But it can be even better. We found Steph here. She was just in the advanced English group. And um, could you introduce yourself, please? Uh, hi, yeah, my name is Steph. Um, I'm originally from the UK, but I've been living in Berlin for five years and I work at a research institute here in science communication. Steph, thank you for joining us here. Would Pardon. you tell us uh, what you did today? Um, so we got to listen to just Wade and Alice White talking about their work on Wikipedia, which I already knew about before and I was really excited to learn more about. Um, and I just edited one article um, for in English, um, or created a new article in English um, based on the German text. So I'm hoping maybe I can spend a bit more time um, building up a bit more and adding more content. Okay, cool. And who's the article on? I wrote an article on Christina Lang, who is a an entrepreneur and microbiologist. What kind of activities in general do you think people could do to make science more diverse? I mean. Like, obviously, editing like this yeah. today, is there anything else you've seen or any initiatives you can think of? That, like, anything you yourself do? That... Yeah. I mean, you're already familiar with the Langen Aktivwissenschaft, and I think yeah, this sure. is something that I, I really like to be part of, that I was part of last year, and that I want to continue. Um, I think what is important is, at least to an extent, is for especially younger people who might be thinking about going into the sciences to be exposed to that firsthand and also to actually see diversity firsthand within existing scientific institutions. Yeah. Um, and a really good way to do that is to open up your doors and actually show that this is accessible. There are people here from, from various walks of life who you can identify with, um, yeah. who maybe you will even make contact with in the future. Yeah. Um, and to make it something that is... The, you know, you can see with your own eyes rather than something that kind of see, seems like a, you know, something you read about or something that you hear about that you're not part of. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's kind of Jess Wade's approach as mm -hmm. well, that if we make women more visible and I think minorities mm -hmm. more visible, then that will encourage people to both join and stay in yeah. STEM subjects. Um, I mean, what was your own personal thing? How did you get into science? Did you... Did you feel it was something that was accessible? Did you have to mm. kind of fight? Or? Um, I don't, I never felt like I had to fight, but I think actually perhaps that's something that drives me to create Wikipedia articles in the first place is I was really inspired as a child by women who worked in science. I mean, I remember reading books about Marie Curie, you know, Lisa Meitner. Mm. Um, I grew up in a family that made me feel like women could achieve these things. And I was lucky enough to you know, to, to get an education that enabled me to do that. Um, I didn't feel held back really by being female, but I, it was something that drove me, actually. Mm -hmm. But I think that comes from what I was exposed to. 
Yeah. And it, I think it's important that that continues. Yeah. And, and have you felt um, quite a positive experience so far in your scientific career? Or has there been anything that's kind of annoyed you? You felt mm. had been treated differently because of being a woman or...? Um, I, I kind of feel like I might be a slightly different case because I actually now don't work specifically in scientific research. I yeah. work in science communication. I started off studying biology mm-hmm. um, and I realized actually that I preferred to go more into the communication um, the communication side of things. Um, I mean, I suppose there were some things that put me off going into research, but I didn't personally feel that that was, it wasn't because I was, I was a woman. I think I felt like I wanted something more creative. Um, I, I was really interested in science more broadly, and what I really like about being a science communicator is that I get to read about this all the time and, and get to to find out so much about different fields and rather than yeah. zoning into one in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I left academia for mm. similar reasons yeah. and wanted to do more like uh, research project management, mm-hmm. communication stuff, because yeah. I loved knowledge and research, but I didn't want to spend the rest of my life conferences with the same 20 people yeah you know and, yeah um, yes yeah, so I totally relate to that yeah um, I mean well, I suppose actually now that you said that perhaps one thing that kind of directed my career choices a little bit was the thought that maybe one day I would want to have a family and would that be affected by my career choice and I wouldn't say that that's something that's ever really um, I've never made decisions purely on that basis but I would definitely say that there were some things or some careers that I considered that I thought, is that going to take up a lot of my time? Will I have free time for myself or for family? Um, and I suppose I wonder whether or not being a woman has, whether that was somehow affected by that. Yeah, to kind of in the back of your mind. Yeah, yeah I mean, I'm sure this is, you know, I, I think every, you know, most people kind of consider at least their work-life balance to some extent when they decide a career, but I wonder how much of that, of an impact mm. that had for me. Um, yeah, I mean, is there um, anything you'd like people to do scientists to do mm-hmm. in terms of science communication or you know um, um i would love just scientists in general to be um confident about communicating their ideas and keen to do it and see it as part of their work and i i mean i think perhaps something that's difficult now is that it's um there's so much you know time is people are short of time and don't necessarily think instantly to communicate their work but i think it can benefit them and, and terms of you know getting that work out there and showing what they're doing and also um creating that platform so that that the general public can actually see what they are researching not only understand something about why this research happens but also consider that maybe this is something they want to do in the future Our aim today was to explore what connections there were between open science and this is, these issues of diversity and visibility and also Wikipedia and kind of how that played a role. And I, I think we've, we've uncovered some interesting aspects to that, some angles to that. Yeah, it seemed like everyone we interviewed had a certain perspective on it that was somehow similar but yet new. Yes, yes. Um, and it's one of the puzzles one of the puzzle pieces in making a more diverse world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about the way that Wikipedia connects with formal uh, science and, you know, is it shouldn't be seen as a threat, but instead should be seen as a way forward. Um, not necessarily that everything should be like Wikipedia, but we should look at the way that that builds community and uses digital resources to make things 
more effective. Um, I think that was one interesting point for me. And another really interesting point for me was that women um, kind of needing to be more visible and needing to be um, more accepted in science can definitely lead to new, new solutions to these scientific problems. And I think that's where open science really intersects because if science is more open, we're seeing more about what other research people are doing and therefore we're more likely in a collaborative environment to get those other perspectives and to get those solutions that maybe come from someone thinking differently. Mm -hmm. Another point that um, struck me was the fact that everybody seemed to have this idea that it's obvious that knowledge should be open and that it's a public good. That was something that people mentioned over and over again. Mm -hmm. The public funds um, science and so it's fair that there shouldn't be such a thing as paywall. Yeah. And that was nice to see that everybody had that as just like a core belief. Yeah, that was a default setting, I felt, yeah. everyone. They weren't, there wasn't any question as to whether or not that should, should I, be. I'm not sure how it would be if we would have asked 20 years ago, people. So it was for me to see that we really are in a time that there is some change and maybe there is really a paradigm change about what knowledge is and who it should be accessible to. So that's it for today. Thank you very much for joining us. You can find the podcast on iTunes and all other major podcasting platforms, as well as on Podbean. You can also follow us on Twitter at OOSP underscore OrionPod. Please let us know if you've got any ideas for episodes, uh, for interviews, or you've got any comments about the show. You can also email us directly at Orion at mdc-berlin.de. The uh, show is brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project, which is an EU research project, and it is produced at the Max Delbruck Center in Berlin. The music is brought to you by Fabio Del Miguel, and the uh, sound mixing is done by Paolo Oliveira. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will hope that you enjoy uh, that you will join us again soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.